You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is baseball coach John Diebel. John represented Australia as a baseball pitcher at the 1988 Olympics. He transitioned into coaching in 1994 in America as a minor league manager and hitting coach with the Florida Marlins and Boston Red Sox. In 2000, he became the head coach of the Australian team, eventually leading them to the silver medal at the 2004 Olympics. Then in 2011, he led the team to fifth place at the World Baseball Classic, the country's highest ever placing. He became the first Australian to coach in the majors when he became Boston's first base coach in 2005. And from 2002 to 2016, he was the head scout for the Boston Red Sox in the Pacific Rim. In 2016, he joined the Los Angeles Dodgers in the same role. John was born with a mitt in his hand, thanks to both parents representing Australia at baseball. The sport has taken him all over the world and allowed him to cross paths with some of the biggest names in the game. He is passionate about developing young talent and global enough in his perspective to know that you have to treat people as individuals if you want to help them succeed. He is honest about his shortcomings as a coach and at the same time proud of his team's achievements and the role that culture and leadership played in delivering them. 
key parts of this interview for me were his use of psychological profiling to allow him to find the best way to communicate with individuals, how he encourages his teams to focus on the execution of their particular role in service of the greater goal of perfect execution for the team, his views on self-doubt and how as a coach he knows there can be a problem when he expects more from someone than they expect from themselves, and how great coaches are honest, are excellent communicators, and not afraid to make hard decisions. This was a terrific conversation, and I hope you get as much out of it as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hello, John Diebel. Great to chat with you today. How are you going, and where are you in the world? Now, I'm back on the Gold Coast, so I'm back home. So we've had shut down, so I'm not really work well I am working but I'm not working so I'm not traveling but I've got all my house set up with satellites so I've got games in Japan Korea Taiwan China so I've been watching Korean high school games today and the Dodgers play so I had uh, free televisions going today that sounds like it'd be worth selling tickets to come and sit in there and watch a bit of sport with you <laughs> yeah no it's it's good I'm usually on the road 200 days a year so this is uh, this has been all new, and I just realised how much I needed a break because I've been going pretty much 27 years on the road, and when I get home, coaching in Australia, and I've actually enjoyed the break. Well, I'm glad you brought up coaching because the name of our podcast is, of course, The Great Coaches, and when I was researching great Australian coaches, your name just kept coming up time and time again, so we're <laughs> honoured we're honored to get the chance to, to talk to you today, and I actually wanted to start, if I could, with your parents, because I understand your dad represented Australia, but your mother represented Australia at netball, softball and baseball. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I'm assuming you were born with a mitt in your hand. Um, yeah, that is correct. My dad played for Australia. My mother, who just passed away two weeks ago, actually. Sorry she, to hear that. No, no, she, that's fine. She played sport in Western Australia. So she grew up yeah, playing three sports for Australia. And my father was a very good cricketer as well as baseball. But um, yeah, so we didn't really have much choice when we were kids. And my brother and myself and my sister played netball. So my mother, before she died, she, my daughter's actually at the Australian Institute of Sport. She's on the Australian under 16 and under 18 Australian teams. My mother keeps reminding her that she got, my daughter got a talent from her grandmother. So she always reminds her of that. What coaching lessons do you reckon you took forward from your parents into your own time as a coach? I think probably the biggest one, they never interfered, even though my father, I don't think there was a day he ever tried to coach me and I tried to instill that in my kids. I just keep telling my kids, get better. You don't get picked on teams and then there's been instances where they haven't been picked on teams and I tell them all, get better. Because when you're in this business, you hear a lot of excuses from parents or parents telling you how good their kids are. And I just never recall a day when my father gave me any advice, but there was never any excuses either. Just get better. You've been a coach, if my research is correct, for four World Series baseball winning teams. And you've either been a coach or scout with American professional teams since 94. So I guess if you add all that experience in plus your parents, what do you think great coaches do differently? Look, I think communication is the key. Look, I was lucky. It's really hard to do these days, but I was coaching in Australia after a playing career and and John Bowles, who was with the Florida Marlins, our team was affiliated with the Florida Marlins. And he came come over and offered me a job. And I actually turned him down the first year. He came come back the second year and offered me a job to work as a coach for the Florida Marlins. And that's how it all started. And I was scouting and I was coaching. And it was interesting with them too. It was an Australian kid back in the early 90s going to teach Americans how to play baseball. And, but he was fantastic. He was a great mentor. He was a great leader. 
Rob Leary was another guy, Dave Dombrowski, all these these guys with the Marlins. It was such a great organisation. And basically they threw the balls out and said, here's the program and go and implement it. But I think the biggest thing that I've learned in that area, communication with players, be honest. I've still got players on from Australia that don't talk to me that I've had to get rid of. But I can always look at myself in my heart and say, well, I did what was in the best interest of the organisation and I told you the truth. And that's something I always tried to do was be honest as much as it hurt. A lot of people don't want to hear it, but I think it's the best way. And But yeah, I've been lucky. I, had, I got a World Series ring with the Marlins. When the Marlins was purchased, the owner of the Marlins, Mr. Henry, bought the Boston Red Sox. He took me and two other guys over with him. And that was the start of, and Theo Epstein became our general manager. Craig Shipley, who's another Australian, got on board. And it was the start of a new era. It was developing a scouting and playing machine. And we won four World Series in 13 years. And they won, they actually beat us two years ago. So now that I'm over with the Dodgers. Look, it's been a good ride. It's, I'm out of Australian baseball now. Yeah, so I'm still doing my work with the Dodgers, but it's been a good ride for sure. It sounds like honesty plays a big part in your coaching philosophy. Yeah, and Keith, I always say, yeah, the other thing is, let's get the fundamentals right. I often talk to coaches when I was with the national team, the junior coaches, they'd have 27 different plays. I keep saying, guys, why? Let's do three really good. And that's, you know, in professional baseball, that's what happens too. I'm a big believer if, if you've got the basic fundamentals down, when things aren't going well, you're not going to fall very far because you've got the basics. And I say that a lot. And I know with our Australian team, the time I was there, we really worked hard on pitching and defence because we knew if we were perfect and didn't make a mistake in 27 outs, we were going to have a chance to win. And and again, we were competing against teams that a lot higher quality than we were. And our philosophy was pitching and defence and hopefully we could get a timely hit and win the games. But I think that held us in good stead. We won a silver medal. In 1999, we won that Intercontinental Cup. I was the bench coach then. Mike Young was the coach. And we took that team. We finished fifth in two world championships too, which was a great effort for a team that wasn't highly ranked. Actually, I'd like to talk about the Olympics if I could, but not actually the silver medal. I'm really interested. You talked about how the results and the performance in 2000, where you didn't go so well by your own expectations, were really the catalyst for 2004 and the silver medal performance. Could you talk a little bit about what happened in 2000 to give you that energy towards uh, 2004? Yeah, look, what happened was I was put into the job, I think, in the January. Uh, Mike Young was the coach. And and look, I don't really know what happened to this day, but he ended up not being the coach and they threw me into that position. And look, if I look back now, I wasn't ready to do that, if I was honest and it was overwhelming having it in your own country, uh, the Olympics and the expectation. But yeah, I don't think I was ready. I didn't handle the players that well. There were a lot of players that played in the major leagues and at high levels. And But I think without the mistakes of 2000, we wouldn't have had the success 2004. And we had a, a lot of players that stood up. But Phil Jauncey, sports psych, we designed that over four years under his leadership. And it was about perfect execution. The big thing that I work on, and it's all through Phil Jauncey, is is perfect execution. The scores are relevant. The pitcher has to make quality pitches down in the zone. The hitter has to take a quality swing. The infielders get behind every ball, make a perfect throw to the first base. The outfielders get behind every ball, make all the catches. The physiotherapist, he needed to stay up all night to get the players on the field. My assistant coaches had to perform at the highest level. So it wasn't ever about winning. It was about execution. So 
everyone had to execute their craft. And that was something. And coaching him professionally in the States is a lot different than coaching at the Olympics because you've got 162 games in America and it's about development and getting kids to the big leagues. But the Olympics, you've got 10 days to strap it on. And we were a million to one. And we beat Japan two times in three days. We beat Daisuke Matsuzaka, who I end up signing for $103 million. Yeah, it was surreal. But the credit goes to the players, Phil Jauncey, our coaching staff. Everyone worked together. And again, everyone executed. And it was just little things like, I remember David Nielsen saying one day, it's really hot here in, in Athens. Let's make sure everyone's got a bottle of water and a bottle of Gatorade on the bus. Okay, let's put that in play. And, and it was about everybody having their say too. And, Again, I was just steering the ship. I've never been up there to say, well, I was the reason that we won. It's about steering the ship and everybody doing their job. And, and that's basically what happened. You say that you were just steering the ship, but I've seen footage of you on the sideline and you're very calm. You seem to give very simple messages. I don't see you raving <laughs> and raving. Is that something that you work at on game day? Well, I just think it's part of baseball that there's no point, you know, ranting and raving. I think coaching's changed a lot in the last 10 years. The old AFL footy thing, it, I don't think it works anymore because I think our kids are different. Players are different these days. And I don't think that you can get in there. But we also knew that with our program, we also knew everybody. And this was through Phil Johnson. We had player profiles on everybody. So we knew everybody's player profile and the guys that you can yell at the guys you can't the guys if they need a foot up the bum that you could get that from them that was all profiling and that's what we do we know what makes people's tick because of the profiling that that we had and you've got to be cool i think if the players see that you're not cool it's very hard for them to stay cool i'm a big believer in too that if you've done something higher than what you can and i'll give an example i remember hopping off the bus in athens and i remember David Nielsen hopping off the bus and, and also Graham Lloyd, Phil Stockman, Chris Oxpring. These guys all had played in the big leagues. And at the Olympics, they were coming down a level. And before we had those guys, we always had to go out and play at a way higher level than what we were capable of doing. And I was in 2004. And things like that in coaching in the minor leagues, I think it helps you prepare for Olympic Games, even though it's it's just a, such a different atmosphere. It's intense. And I was a wreck after the Sydney Games, again, because we didn't do well. And, and I take responsibility for that. But again, I don't think we win a silver medal without those failures. It sounds like Phil Jauncey and learnings and history have been something that you've been you know, taking lessons from history and building forward has, has been a big part of your success with the Aussie team. If you were talking to a coach that wanted to improve culture within their team, what are the first things you'd advise them to do? When I went down to Melbourne to coach the Melbourne Aces, I think they had a toxic culture. And it was just getting people in a room together and getting people to talk and getting them to understand each other. I'm a big believer in also that you've never walked a mile in people's shoes. I remember back when I was in the minor leagues, I had kids from the Dominican Republic that never had toilet paper, never had electricity, never been to school and I always used to say to our coaches there that would be yelling at our kids what are you yelling for how are they supposed to learn if they've never been to school and I think players understanding where other players come from I had one kid and you may even know him Patrick Pass Patrick Pass won four Super Bowl rings for the New England Patriots I had Patrick Pass as a baseball player with the Florida Marlins Patrick Pass was brought up by a white family and his mother and father had both passed away and people thought he was grumpy and but they never really well, probably wasn't their job but really got down to understand why he may have been like that he was a great kid 
And he was a great baseball player. He would have played in the big leagues in baseball, but ended up going to footy to the NFL. But understanding players and what they've been through, where they come from. I remember in our apartments years ago with the Marlins, and things have changed in baseball now because you've got to get finished high school to get off the island now in the Dominican Republic and Venezuela, and you have to learn English. But back when I was managing over there, I remember taking a vacuum cleaner into these kids to tell them to clean their room up. In Spanish, I was saying, vamos, vamos, let's go, let's clean this room up. And I, not thinking, I handed them the vacuum cleaner and I handed it to them and they just looked at me and then I pulled the cord out of the end of it. And then I realised, these kids don't even know what a vacuum cleaner is. They've never had electricity. So it's really funny that getting back to your point, it's to understand each other to form the culture. And, and, And I think that getting everyone to like one another is a key and and getting rid of getting rid of bad people in your organization i think that's a key also yeah well i wanted to talk to you about negative peer pressure within the group could you talk about your experience with handling it and maybe top tips that you've got for other coaches that are experiencing it well i just don't think you can be successful if you've got a toxic clubhouse a toxic it's really hard a lot of times they are the best players and I think in 2004, we had a great group of guys. I think we had a bit of a toxic thing going on in Sydney. But again, that's my responsibility. You know, I didn't realise all that at that time that, and or how to handle it. Sitting people down and talking, you know, when these toxic people, when you sit them down and, and talk to them, and that's one thing I do a lot. I have a lot of player meetings. You know, we, we were just talking the other day with the Melbourne Aces, a team I coach this year. I think I probably would have had 50, 60 one-on-one meetings with with different players, just over different things and guys that weren't doing what they needed to be doing and getting that personal relationship and getting them to talk. Phil Jauncey taught me a lot about that sort of stuff and he has a great book out called Managing Yourself Responsibility Back on the Athlete or the Employee or the... It's a fantastic book and it's called Managing Yourself and Others, yeah, and it's about having players and having employees be responsible for their own actions. I learned a lot from him and, you know, we talk often about life and about athletes and, and all that sort of stuff. He was involved with the Brisbane Broncos, the Australian cricket team. He was involved with Wayne Bennett, Lee Matthews. He was involved with a lot of those guys. So he was a great help to me in my coaching career and, and I learned a lot from him in regards to, to all that sort of stuff. And, and the other thing he taught me too was having players because there's certain players that you need to have them think that it was their idea. That was one big thing that we learned to do over the years. And it took a long time because I didn't understand it. I'm not that smart. But, you know, he was able to walk me through. And a lot of players, well, there's players that don't play, but when they think it's their idea, they will go out and they'll own it. And that's one thing we did a really good job at over the years, both in the States and with our national team. It sounds like the role of the head coach in a baseball team is psychologist, father figure, team coordinator how, how would you describe your role as a coach in baseball when you're the head yeah, coach I think you're right babysitter trying to get in the head the thing that you're trying to do every day is to get them to perform at their best I think if you lose the clubhouse you need to get your players on side they know that if I go off if I start yelling and screaming well it's deserved because I don't like to do it and it's not something that you want to do but every now and again you know it's needed but I've noted the guys that I've coached over the years when I have gone off that they've sat there in silence but that's the biggest key I think the communication talking with players and the guys that aren't doing well I had a kid this year a lovely kid one of my favorite kids of DJ Burt I had him last year with the Melbourne Aces and this year he just wasn't the same guy I pulled him and I go what's wrong with you where's that guy that had the smile on his face last year and where was that guy that was a great teammate and, and 
And he was like, yeah, I get it. And I'll do a better job from here on in. And he did. And he's, he just wasn't the same as what he was even. But once it was made, he was made aware of it, he was fantastic. Had a great year. One of the reasons we won this year. And it's treating everyone's different. And that's the one thing I think we do wrong in Australia. I often say this I was on the radio the other day. We train holistically. We train as a group. And I know with the Dodgers and my time with Boston, we train tools. We train individuals. We train tools. And we train building people's tools. Yeah, so whatever the tools are, we get people to to work on those, not train as a group. Uh, That's one thing I see in this country. Everyone goes out and they train together. But instead of if a guy needs to work on their running tool, they they work on their running tool or, or their throwing tool or their hitting tool. And we don't seem to do that individually in this country. Can I ask you a question? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. About, it's interesting that story you were talking about with the player at the Aces, how you, you read him and approached him. I find that interesting because baseball is a game of technology and data. Everything is measured uh, from a very young age. Could you tell us about a time you looked beyond the statistics and used your own judgment as a coach and, and what role that plays, particularly in your role with representative teams? It's a really good question. We have a lot of data. On the national team, we have a stack of it like other teams do. We could never afford to have an advanced scout on the road. I guess we were lucky that Phil Dale, myself and Tony Harris had our own data from scouting in our jobs. But I always remember Jim Leland, the famous baseball coach he was with the Marlins and I used to ask him questions and he said you need to manage from your gut feel from your heart there is your data but there's times where you've got to manage from your heart your gut feel and that was something I always tried to do too you put the the objective and the subjective data together to try and make a decision yeah look into the game now when we started doing I think we were before our time in the baseball we started putting the shifts on in baseball which they do now nearly every hitter we were doing it back in the early 2000s we didn't know what we were doing but all we were trying to do was to put the opposition off because we knew that Cuba were way better than us and if we moved all our position players over to one side and you know wouldn't make them change their swing and um, we didn't have the data behind to to get that to know really what we were doing but Data is so important now. And if you look at professional baseball, data determines whether you're in the lineup, what you've done with that pitcher. Data determines a whole lot of stuff in the game. Who's in the lineup, what pitchers are going to pitch, when they're going to pitch. I was just watching yesterday, there was, or the day before, the San Francisco Giants sat down one of their best players because of data. He didn't hit well against that that um, picture. It's interesting, but it's here to stay. And I've done a lot of work with AFL clubs here and cricket clubs here in Australia because the data's just become massive. 
it works. This war that they have in baseball, it works. And we've tried to introduce it over here in the AFL and the clubs just don't take to it. But I know it works because I watched it and I was involved with, with Boston, not winning a, a, a World Series in 86 years and winning four in 13 years and winning five in 15 years. So it does work. And it's really interesting now that I'm with the Dodgers, the technology that they have is way beyond anything I've ever seen. And at my age, I'm starting to learn it all again. And now we've got the Rapsodos and I've, I've learned Rapsodo and Trackman are instruments that talk about vertical and horizontal movements and spin rates and all this sort of stuff and, and uh, exit velocity and, and all this type of stuff that I've had to learn again. And it's been fascinating. It's been really good. And I've learned, I say to people, I think I've learned more in the last three years than I've learned in 27 years in the game. You've got to keep learning. And a lot of scouts that are older than me, they don't want to know about this sort of stuff. And I just keep telling them, you're not going to have a job. You better conform to this and, and learn it. And that's something that I've spent a lot of time on learning all this data and what it means and how it works. Can I, um, that's a great answer. Thank you. I agree with you. Data is coming into all parts of life, whether it's selling beer as I do here in Europe or whether it's on a baseball field. So I think it's, it's part of the new reality. Baseball is a game of symbols. You know, the coaches making symbols from the sideline, catchers making symbols. The rings are an important part of the game. And recently we were talking to another guest and he was talking about the New England Patriots and the signs in their facility say only one thing, just do your job. There's nothing else plastered around the wall. So I wanted to ask you about symbols and words and whether there are any that you use in your coaching. Well, again, going back to what we talked about before, it's interesting you said do your job, what what the New England house is about executing perfectly. And it's the same thing. It's, It's doing your job. See, if everyone does their job in their organisation, so we always used to say, we don't want anyone to play better than what they're capable of. We just don't want them to play less than they're capable of. So if everybody does their job and everybody executes, well, we're going to win. We're going to, our physios are going to be great. Our, our team leader's going to be great. Our coaching staff's going to be great. So if everybody does their job, see, you want to be able to finish whether you win, lose or draw, you want to be able to finish and say, look, we, we executed and, and there's no regrets. And that was a thing we used to use too. If everyone does their job, there's no regrets if you don't win. It's when people don't do their job was if only, if only, if only. And we always like to change if only if, with only if. Only if we execute perfectly, we will win. Again, that's Phil Jauncey and that's what I learned from him. And he was a big part of that success, as I said before. But our symbols are very simple. Just execute and do your job. And it's like, it's the same thing. And I try to keep things simple. There's a lot of things with all this data now. I still think you can overcomplicate it. So I love the data, but we have to make sure that we keep it simple also. What about anxiety? I mean, perfection as a goal can put a lot of stress on players. At the same time, they've got all this data coming at them. So how do you help players deal with self-doubt? Are there any tips or tools that you use? You know, you come across it all the time. I think everyone, I think we all at some point in our life have self-doubt. And I think that separates the good ones from the great ones. And again, the communication for me is what I've always gone back to when I think you have a problem with somebody's when you expect more out of them than they expect out of themselves. And that's part of life. And, and that happens a lot. But to me, I always, my default's always communication. It's sit down, it's talk and be open and get them to be open too. You find a lot about people by sitting down and talking. And again, that was one thing I really did a lot when I was coaching at the national level and coaching in the States. And in the States, it's interesting because you get kids from all kinds of backgrounds. 
you get rich kids, you get poor kids, you get Latin American kids and you get Venezuelan kids, you get European kids. We've had them all. I remember one year I coached in the Marlin system, we had 30-man roster. We had 28 Latin American kids. We had one Australian, Brett Ronenberg, and we had one African-American kid in played center field. My hitting coach was Cuban. My pitching coach was Cuban. My trainer was Mexican. So I had to learn Spanish really quick. It's really funny now. When you stop using it, you forget it. But I actually got pretty good at it. And I had to because we had to communicate with, with the kids. But um, again, it's sitting down community. But even back in the early Marlin days with the rookie ball kids, I, don't, I must have had thousands of kids in my office, just little things that they'd done wrong. And you know, we had one kid one day, I remember John Bowles got on the phone. We were coming back from West Palm Beach and he said to me, I can't remember the kid's name, and I wouldn't tell you his name anyway, but I could never remember his name when I tell the story. He said, when this kid gets back on the bus, he comes straight in my office. And John Bowles could put the fear of God into anybody, like nobody I've ever come across. I remember going into his office. Well, this kid, he test drove a car from a car yard, and he never took it back. He kept it. And they come down to the, the baseball complex to get the car back, and Bowlesy was furious. But things like that, they're the things you do. And you have to sit those kids down. And I bailed a kid out of jail at four o'clock in the morning for hitting a guy with a golf club down in in, uh, Florida. I could write a book on on my life in doing it, that's for sure. But there were a lot of crazy things that went on. But again, you'd sit down and and talk. That's the key to it for me. It sounds like it's not only talking, but when you're leading a diverse organisation, different ethnicities, older people, younger people, and they don't often speak the same language, it sounds like simplicity is also part of your communication plan or style. Yeah, look, I try to keep it simple, but just thinking back now, I think that was a good learning curve for me too because it was it was hard to communicate with those kids and, and you had to communicate with the other coaches. You had to communicate with, with the people above you. Coaching in the minor leagues, there was a lot of work that had to be done after hours of how each kid performed. But yeah, look, I try and keep it simple. I talk to John Buchanan a lot. I mean, we talk a lot about coaching and I was actually speaking to him yesterday and he, he was talking a lot what uh, Justin Langer does with the with the Australian cricket team. But again, he seems to keep it simple also. And I think you start confusing people, you lose them. What about when you have a broad staff? Because baseball, you have multiple coaches all through the organisation. What advice have you got for head coaches that want to keep the message consistent? Well, I think the one strength, and I don't know if I was necessarily a great game coach, but the one thing that we had a fantastic coaching staff my years with Phil Dale, Tony Harris. We had Greg Jelks, who, who sadly passed away, Graham Lloyd, Pat Kelly, Damien Shanahan. We had a lot of coaches over the years, but I think the big strength of mine was let them do their job. So we employ them to do a job. And when I was managing the national team, it's a massive mistake. I think Justin Langer was talking about it the other day when he figured out that he couldn't do everything, you've got to delegate. And Tony Harris was a fantastic bench coach for us. As good as there is around, he was in charge with the catcher's signs and working with the catchers. We had Pat Kelly or Michael Collins or Andy Graham. Their job was to work with the infielders. Greg Jelks was working with the outfielders. Paul Elliott worked with the outfielders. The first base coach did his job. Phil Dale and Graham Lloyd had the, had the pitchers. So my job really was to, to try and work out when to bring, run your bullpen and communicate with the players. And, and I think that was one of my strengths too, is getting the coaches, trusting the coaches. And once you trust the coaches, I think that you have a lot more success. I often see people wanting to go out and do everything themselves, and it's bloody hard to do. Coaching's hard at the top level, and people don't get how hard it is. You know, you get criticised. I got criticised a lot. But coaching's hard, and it's not easy. And armchair 
people that get on social media these days, I can't stand it. And everyone's got something to say, but they don't realise when you're in that hot seat, the game speeds up very quick and you need good people around you and people that think they don't, well, they're crazy. How did you deal with criticism? When it started getting personal, when it started affecting my family, towards the end there, there was, there was a lot of criticism and just unfair lies from certain people in Australian baseball now. The lies and fake Facebook accounts just tearing you apart. And there's people that are, that are involved in teams, our professional teams here now, and it was all personal. And it was never anything about coaching. They don't realise that you're going to make mistakes. This is not an easy job. And if it was an easy job, everyone would be in this position. It's tough. And what people don't realise, it speeds up quick. When you start to coach at a high level, it speeds up and, and the game goes really quick. And that's what I say. People will, people will uh, figure that out when, when and if they ever get a chance themselves. And, you know, I copped a lot of criticism, probably the last two or three years. But at the end of the day, we won a silver medal. We finished fifth in the world twice with teams that, probably shouldn't have been in the top 20 and that's not disrespect to our players because we had some great players and great people and guys that did the best they possibly could but the criticism the social media I just think is a disgrace I don't have social media I just think these people that get on other people when they're no good themselves but they're happy to go on and tell lies and make fun of people and I just think it's wrong because they've never been out there and coached at that Olympic level at the major league baseball level it's difficult it's not easy to do. Eddie do you give your athletes or your players advice about dealing with criticism? I don't think, like in professional baseball where I was at, there wasn't. And there wasn't the social media like it is now. There wasn't really social media around at that point. But like I don't think too many of our players badly. On the national team, there probably has been some. But again, the people that are writing these things, they've got no idea. They've just got no idea. And some people don't like to read it. It is what it is. It's here to stay, but it makes me sick. People that have got comments that are unfair. And when they haven't got the whole answer to, I was criticised the last World Baseball Classic for not pulling out young Lachlan Wells, for pulling him out in a game when he was on a pitch count from the Minnesota Twins. And then two days later, I got criticised for leaving him in by the same people. Unfortunately, gave up a home run, but our statistical, this is where the statistical data comes in. I got crucified over it, but the statistical data that I was given from Australian baseball people said that the guy who was hitting hits way better against right-handers than he does left. And I had a guy in the bullpen who was right-handed, and the last pitching through for Australia, the same guy who was hitting hit him for a home run. So we stayed with the left-hander, Young Wells, who got hit for a home run, and I took a lot of criticism. But I had a plan. Our data told us what we needed to do. Didn't work. There's an instance there where data, and I had to front Australian baseball, and their question to me was, why did you pull him out? Well, he had a pitch count. Why didn't you pull him out two days later? And it's like, if I had pulled him out and the next guy got hit for a home run, it would have been, why didn't you leave him in? So you can't win. It drives me crazy, these people on social media. Then they come and they shit can you, and then they come and try and shake your hand and be your friend. And I've just unloaded on a few people that have been like that. Like, you can have your say, but don't come and try and be my friend after it. That must be heart-wrenching, I reckon, when you've done your best for your country to have that kind of feedback come back at you. But... John, the history book says that you were the pitcher in our first ever Olympic Games win and you were head coach of that team that won silver. And we won't go into the fact that it should have been gold. I don't want to take you down that, <laughs> that path again. I won't, I won't do it. But, of course, if it was gold, you would be held uh, and talked about in a different regard. But, again, I don't want to bring it up. I want to talk about transitioning from player to coach. And you did it very quickly. 
And I wonder whether you've got any advice from, for other coaches who are in that transition. It was probably quickly because I wasn't very good. <laughs> so uh, I got into coaching really quickly because I figured out if I wanted to stay in the game, it wasn't going to be as a player. But look, I was sort of lucky that John Bowles, when I was playing in the Australian League, when he came up and asked me to coach with the Marlins. So that's how it sort of started. I got a phone call in 1996 to go to the Atlanta Olympics. And I went into see Bowles, and I was managing with the Marlins at that point. And he said to me, you either go to the Olympics and lose your job or you stay here and have a job. And it was an easy decision for me because I was finished in 96. So it was like, and it was a surprise phone call, to be honest, Rob Dirksen, who unfortunately passed away. But what, that was the best decision I ever made in my life. That was in 1996. I reckon it was April of 1996. And, and I'm still involved in professional baseball, you know, 24 years later. And I remember Bowlesy saying, it's the Olympics or your job. So the transition was easy for me. I think it was really hard in 2000, I had a lot, of, a lot of close friends that I had to get rid of off the Australian team that were my teammates and my roommates. I had to uh, sack some people that were very close friends of mine that didn't, didn't talk to me for a long time. And uh, yeah, one of them lives around the corner and we're, we're good friends. So, look, that is really tough. Going from player to manager with guys that you've played with is really hard to do. What advice? Be honest. I would say that the, the be honest part of it, because yeah, I hurt some people along the way, and and I was talking to one of them just the other day from the 2000 Olympics, uh, Brett Cedarblad, and I said, if we look back, I may not have made the right decision at the end of the day, but I had to make a decision, and what I thought was he was done as a pitcher, and and that was tough. We talked about it just the other day because he lives around the corner, so it, it's really hard. You know, I look back and back back in those days, I. It was sort of lead by the front, be a leader and, and just jump on and follow sort of thing. And, and luckily we had a group, good group of guys. It's interesting, that group, the Melbourne Monarchs of 1992, we still all catch up on Zoom. We've had a 10-year a reunion, a 15-year reunion, a 20-year reunion. And we're planning on going, we went to Vegas for the 20-year reunion and we're planning on going again next year. And so all the guys from 1992, a whole lot of them still talk to each other and we catch up with each other, a special group. John, you've been very generous with your time. If I could ask you just one last question, and it is uh, what legacy do you believe you are leaving um, or have left as a coach? I'm really disappointed with the, the Olympic team. Oh, sorry, with the Australian team. I never even got a thank you. The time you put in, there was never ever a thank you. That's one thing Australian baseball, I think, has really done a poor job. Not just me, but with the whole coaching staff. I think you always want to leave something better than where you found it. And I think we did that. We took a team that were 15th in the world to fifth, fifth or sixth in the world, um, sixth for the most part. And I think we had some success. But like towards the end, I was really into developing our kids. Develop, you know, I run the MLB Academy for, for 12 years and, and that was all about developing kids, getting them to the next level, getting them into professional baseball or into college. And that was a big part for me and that's probably one criticism I have of our Australian League. There's too many imports. We don't have enough Australians playing in our league and they'll keep saying that there's not enough players, which is not correct. I just think that what are we doing this for? We should be developing Australian players. And that's the one legacy I think that Aaron Whitefield played in the major leagues just the other day. He's first, I spent some off-season with Aaron trying to work on his arm because he hurt his, his shoulder. And, and I did a lot of drills with Aaron to try and help him. And 
you know, he wasn't with the Red Sox or he wasn't with the Dodgers, but you know what, he was an Australian kid that you know we wanted to help. So uh, and that's the same with all the kids. You want to help them, and I hope we can get hundreds of kids in the major leagues. That's the legacy I think you you leave and you want to leave. John Diebel, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Good on you. Thanks for that. That's great. Hi, everyone. It's Mike here. You've been listening to the great coach, John Diebel. Some of the key parts of the interview for me were how baseball focuses training on the individual and their particular development area, not group training with a focus on generic skills. The importance of marrying the plethora of data available in baseball with your gut feel when it comes to decision making. How the team's failure at the 2000 Olympics provided the learning that led them to the silver medal at the 2004 Olympics, despite a world ranking that was much lower. And wanting to leave a legacy where hundreds of Australian kids are playing in the major leagues because of the infrastructure Coach Diebel helped set up. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as we did bringing it to you. Before you go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Like Rapa54 from Japan, who said, Great advice, applicable everywhere. And Alistair McCaw from the U.S., who said, Your fantastic podcast is keeping me great company. Thanks. Thank you, Rapa54 and Alistair. The interaction with people around the world who listen gives us great energy. If you have feedback or comments, please let us know. All the details of how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 